Thank you, Elizabeth. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 37. It's the first book of the Bible. It's page number 37, actually, in your Bibles, in the pew rack, I believe. Genesis 37. Last weekend, I had the privilege of addressing the marriage and family conference for two sessions here at the church. And I have been told by several that one of the talks I gave was very helpful, and I've been asked to preach a similar message to that this morning. It's a little bit of a different sermon, but I think it's very important. It's important for us to talk about. I examined in my first talk some dynamics found within unhealthy relationships. This is not specifically talking about romantic relationships. Those, those are included, certainly. It could be all kinds of relationships. Me with my children, you and your spouse, you and your siblings, you and your parents, you and a co-worker. And so I want to start things off. I want us to think about what an unhealthy relationship looks like. These unhealthy relationships are usually very destructive. It's a sinful relationship. And we know that these types of relationships exist because Adam disobeyed God and plunged our world into sin. All relationships to one degree or another have some kind of sin in it. But unhealthy relationship is where someone is hardened in their sin. It's where one person is being so selfish and so sinful that it is harming someone else. Have you ever known somebody that treated you badly or that was selfish towards you and refused to change? They only ever wanted to do what they want to do and they try and control everything else around them. That's the heart of a selfish relationship. Selfishness, control, anger, and there's all sorts of examples of this in Scripture, right? The very beginning, Cain selfishly murdered Abel because he was jealous in his heart and he wanted to have God's favor instead of Abel having it. Abraham refused to admit that Sarah was his wife and put her in harm's way more than once. King David was guilty of using Bathsheba for his own pleasure, as Sean has recently preached through, and he murdered her husband to cover it up. Israel's priests and religious leaders used their power to take advantage of the orphans and the widows in Israel. There are many more examples of unhealthy relationships in the Bible, but what I'd like to do is look at one instance of an unhealthy or sinful relationship and study it together. And we need to study this. This is important because, first, you may have an unhealthy relationship with someone in your life right now. Maybe your marriage or your relationship to your children. And you need to understand that that is not okay. Sometimes people live in these sinful relationships and they don't know it. Maybe you discover you're in a relationship like this and you find out that you're the one and you need to get help. You need to get help from another mature believer who can help you do the right thing that honors Christ. And we need to talk about this because there may be someone here who has a tendency to treat others sinfully in their relationships. And if that's true, then you need to realize that what you're doing is sin and you need to come to repentance. 
You need to humble yourself before a holy God and turn from your sinful ways of treating other people sinfully. Or maybe you see some sinful tendencies in your life about the way you treat others. You come to realize that you need to change. We also need to study this because you may not treat people sinfully and you may not be in a kind of relationship like this right now. But you need to understand that there are sinful ways that people treat others. And we need to be aware of this. You need to be on alert about it. Young people, when it comes to choosing a husband or a wife, you need to be aware of these sinful dynamics and choose wisely before you marry. You need to be careful not to marry someone like this. Parents, we need to teach our children what these things look like so that they can be on guard. So please take your Bibles and look at Genesis 37. We'll be looking at the story of Joseph and his brothers. And we'll be studying the scriptures, but I'll be passing along wisdom from several others. There's a counselor named Lundy Bancroft who wrote a book about harmful relationships. Much of what he says is in here and also some wisdom from Pastor Tom Hicks, who shared with me much wisdom about this issue as he's wrestled through it and I've learned from him. I'm indebted to both of these men. So this story in Genesis 37 is a little long, but I want you to hear the whole story. And so please pay attention as I read through it together. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I, was, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to the pasture, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not my brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he went, and so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found a man wandering in the fields, and he asked the man, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are, pasturing the flock. 
And the man said, They have gone far away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit there in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He said this so that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore, and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother of our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I... Where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we've found. Please identify whether or not it's your son's robe. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments And put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us our sin, that you would show us what it is to love in a Christ-like way, that you would would work through us and in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like for us to see this morning some elements of an unhealthy, sinful relationship that Joseph had with his brothers. And notice first from our text that his brothers believed that they had a right to be equal to Joseph or even to be superior to Joseph. They believed that it was their right to their father's favor and to God's favor. And this is one of their biggest problems. They believed they had rights over Joseph. Now Joseph's father should never have played favorites with Joseph. Parents should not play favor of one child over another. That is sinful partiality. But in this story, the the brothers were angry because their father favored Joseph over themselves. They really become angry when God himself 
starts to reveal he has chosen Joseph for a special role. The dreams God gave Joseph showed that God was going to make Joseph the leader over his brothers and over his whole family. God was going to give Joseph a high status, and the brothers did not like this. They hated it. They were angry with God. They did not like the place that God had given to them, and they railed against God's providence, and they were discontent, they were jealous, they were envious, they were blinded by their pride, and they thought that they had a right to have a high status for themselves, no matter what God says. And this is where sinful relationships begin. If someone thinks that they have a right to treat you the way that they want, to make themselves happy, that's the beginning of trouble. Sometimes siblings or friends or spouses, even parents, think they have the right to do whatever they want to you or with you. They feel like they own other people. They think that because you're in a relationship with them, they can make, th- they can make you give them special treatment. Just because we're friends, you owe me something. They may think they have the right to make you do what they want you to do. But the Bible teaches that we don't have rights over other people. We're supposed to treat one another with deep respect and love. We don't own anyone. Friends do not own friends. Brothers and sisters don't own brothers and sisters. Parents do not own their children. Husband and wives don't own each other. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of rivalry and conceit, but in humility count others as more important, more significant than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Romans 12, 3 says that no one should think more highly of himself than he ought to. You ever feel like you have the right to get other people to do what you want? Does anyone ever treat you that way? Like they have the right to make you do whatever they want. Like they own you. That's a sin. That's the first thing we see that that Joseph's brothers felt. They thought they had rights over their brother. They felt like they deserved some special status or at least equal status with their brother. Instead of accepting God's providence that they were different and would be used in different ways in God's kingdom. They they would not accept God's providence and they used it as an excuse for their bitterness and their hatred and their envy. Secondly, a second thing we see in the story is that the brothers hated Joseph and could not speak peacefully to him. They could not. Not that they would not. They hated him so much they could not speak peacefully to him. That's what verse 4 says. They hated him and they could not speak with peace to him. They always used their words to insult Joseph. I'm sure they called him names, right? They called him the dreamer. Oh, here comes the dreamer. They're sarcastic. They punished Joseph to show him how angry they were. They wanted Joseph to get out of their way. They wanted the father, their father, all to themselves. They wanted to be the favorites. They wanted to be God's favorite too. And so they spoke hateful, jealous words. I'm sure you've heard the saying that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And that is not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us that our words can hurt us. Proverbs 12, 18 says that there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. 
Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words can affect someone's physical body. In marriage, if a husband is constantly berating or attacking his wife, the wife can become so nervous and anxious that she becomes physically ill. There are cases of people who have endured so many horrible words that they develop a kind of mental trauma that always puts them on high alert. They're always anxious and fearful. They're on edge. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 16.27 says that a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like scorching fire, scalding those around him. These brothers felt like they had a right to speak harshly to Joseph, and they thought that Joseph was in the way of what they really deserved. Third, a third thing we see is that the brothers were determined to sinfully control the situation to get what they wanted. They wanted to control the situation to get what they wanted. They were going to change things by brute force to get the result that they so desperately craved. They wanted Joseph gone so that he couldn't be the father's favorite anymore. And so they figured out a way to get him out. They were going to kill him. They planned to kill him, which is horrific. They were willing to murder their own brother. But then, a little bit of greed got in the way, and they said, well, at least we can make some money off of this. Let's sell him as a slave to Egypt. They accomplished the same goal. Joseph's gone, but at least this way we can line our pockets. He was out of their way. And in harmful, sinful relationships, people often try to control what you do by means of force, coercion, intimidation, manipulation. They try to control what you say by punishing you in some way if you don't say what they want. A spouse may withhold their affection, right? Hatred can be expressed not merely in verbal anger, it can be expressed in withdrawal. They can withhold communication. I'm going to give you the silent treatment until you bend and do what I want you to do. Or I'll control where you go, right? Give me your keys. You have to come to me be able to go anywhere I'm in control or maybe I control who your friends are or how you spend your money finances are a great powerful tool that manipulators will use to control others or they may accuse ridicule berate if they don't get their way and these things may be small at first right insignificant I'm going to control what we watch on the TV. We only watch what I want to watch. We only eat what I want to eat. Or I'll control who you spend your time with and make sure that no one else gets your, as much time as I do. Because it's all about me. Maybe among friends, it may be demanding them to say, well, I'm your best friend. Tell me. Tell me that I'm your best friend. 
But no one has the right to control you this way. And in our story, the brothers were determined to get what they wanted, and they sold their brother into slavery, effectively murdering him, they thought, to get what they wanted. A fourth thing we see is that the brothers looked at Joseph as nothing more than a way to get what they wanted. Joseph was just a means. He was not a person. He was not a brother. He was not a beloved one. He was just a means for me to get what I want. And in sinful relationships, people can try and use you for themselves. They look at you as a way to get what they want. They don't really care about the person. They see the person as a tool, as a vehicle, as a means to get what they want. They want you to make them feel good. Because they're at root selfish. They care about themselves. They want you to give them what they want. You may say things like, well, I just love how that person makes me feel. I love how that person loves me. That person really knows how to give me what I want. You see how self-centered that is? How selfish that is? It takes love, which is in its essence a gift, a giving, and it turns it into what can I get? They don't really care about the other person. They care about themselves. And we can think a little bit more deeply about this for a moment. Think about how our emotions work. How they can lead us to use other people for selfish motives. There's a, a stream in theology throughout church history that's grounded in the biblical narrative. But it says that whatever you want most is what you love the most. Whatever you want the most is what you love the most. We can trace this. Augustine talked about this. Calvin talks about this. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this. And then we get angry at whatever gets in the way of what we love. Right? If we love something and we want it and something else gets in the way, then we get angry. Right? It's football season. I've been looking forward all week to watching a football game and then kids get in the way, right? I'm not looking at that as a divinely orchestrated parenting opportunity in that moment, right? I just want one game all I want, right? So we lash out at them. Or another emotion, we become fearful when anything threatens to take away the thing we love. We're afraid of losing whatever we love. Or we become sad and depressed when we think we can't have the thing we love. If you love God the most, then you'll be angry at your sin because it gets in the way of your relationship between you and God. And we'll feel sad when we sin because our sin is keeping us from the God that we love. It's interrupting our communion, our fellowship with Him. But if you love something in this world, any created thing, then it changes how we think. If I love my own comfort, if I want to just be comfortable, that's, that's my greatest love, then I like for people to take care of me and make me comfortable. If someone makes me comfortable, then I like to have that person around. That person is serving me and giving me what I ultimately want, what I love. I may tell that person I love you, but what I really mean is I love you because you make me comfortable. 
But then if that person begins to make me uncomfortable, then they're the thing standing between me and my idol, my love. And I become angry at them. They've gotten in the way of what I love. They're interrupting my comfort. Or maybe they're threatening to take away my comfort. Maybe I begin to think they might be able to do it and I become afraid of that person. I feel fear towards them. I can love all sorts of created things, right? I can love my stuff, my possessions. I can love money. I can love sex. I can love entertainment. I can love feeling macho, being manly, right? There's anything we can love. And if I love any of those things, then the people that give me what I want, I'll say that I love. But if they get in the way of what I want, then I'll hate them. This is the heart of how the brothers were treating Joseph. They hated Joseph because he was in the way of the thing that they wanted. He was in the way of the thing that they loved. They loved the idea of having favor, the favor of their father and the favor of God. They wanted to be on top, not this runt, right? Not Joseph. So they sold him into slavery. Fifth, the fifth thing we notice about this story, and this is really shocking, is that they had very little conscience about what they did. They had very little conscience about what they did. Look at verse 24. And they took him and they threw him in a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. It's so matter of fact, right? It's horrible. They just did a terrible thing to their brother. And then they were hungry. Let's go get a snack. Let's go sit down and eat a meal. They didn't have upset stomachs. They weren't feeling sick about what they had done. They were hungry. They sinned terribly against their brother. And it's just on to the next thing. They had no conscience about what they had done. And this is one characteristic of sinful relationships. Sometimes when a person hurts another person, they can feel like, well, I didn't do anything that bad. Right? Their conscience is just seared in that area. Remember, they, they, have, they think they have rights to do this. Right? I didn't do anything that bad. You just got what was coming to you. You deserve to be treated that way. See, the brothers were just enforcing their own twisted idea of justice. This little runt dared to speak about us bowing down to him. And this leads to point number six, that the brothers seemed to think they were being gracious by not killing him. The brothers think they were being gracious. Think about what they did. They said in verse 20, come, let us kill him. And throw him into the pits. And then in verse 22, Reuben suggests sparing his life. Which was probably a self-serving plan. He wanted to rescue the brother and take him to the father so that he'd be the hero, right? He wanted his father's favor. But all the brothers eventually decide to sell him. The text doesn't specifically say this, but I think we can imagine that the brothers were fancying themselves as merciful, Right? Well, he deserved to be dead. We didn't kill him. Because we're, we're that merciful. We'll let him live. 
Joseph really deserved to die. But we're bigger men than that. We didn't have to kill him. This is another characteristic we can see in sinful relationships. It's when someone hurts you and then tells you, well, you deserve much worse than you actually got. You should be thankful. You should be glad I didn't give you what you really deserved. The brothers probably thought they were being gracious by sparing Joseph's life and selling him into slavery. Seventh, the last thing we see is that the brothers lied to their father and then they pretended to comfort their father. They lied to their father and then they pretended to comfort their father about his loss. And think about what they did. They told their dad a lie that Joseph was dead, right? Even though they knew he wasn't. They lied to him because that meant that they would get what they really wanted. They'd get their father's attention, right? The, the runt is gone. Joseph's out of here. And the father will finally give us his attention. And they believed that the father would love them more with Joseph out of the way. And people who sinfully hurt others sometimes pretend to comfort the people that they hurt. Right? They cause the pain and then they turn around and pretend to be the cure. They can create the trauma and then they want to bond with you afterwards, after they hurt you. It can make you feel like you're crazy. And they could do this in a way that makes themselves look good. It seems like the brothers could never have been the ones to hurt Joseph because they're the ones right there comforting the father, right? They're pretending to be grieving their brother's loss right alongside their father. What good sons you are. We're weeping with those who weep. No one would ever expect the brothers to have caused the grief, caused the situation. And so people who hurt in relationships, who cause the hurt, can often cause the pain and then pretend to comfort you so that they can continue this cycle and deceive you and deceive others only to cause the pain again. So there we've seen some dynamics of what a harmful person in a relationship can look like. But I want to continue to think about some of these things and to think about a harmful person's mindset. Now first, cons consider the sinful ways that they may try and control. They try to control when you're in a disagreement with them. They may say, a disagreement's only going to last as long as my patience does. If whatever we're disagreeing about is important to me, then I'm going to get what I want. And if you don't back off, you're the one that's hurting me. It's my right to win the argument, and it's your job to back down. That's how this relationship works. There is no other alternative. And because... I know what's best for me and for our relationship. And if you keep disagreeing with me, you're the idiot. And you don't have the right to be upset with me. No matter what I do, it's not okay for you to be upset. You're never allowed to oppose me. My will 
is the right way. It's because I'm always right. And if, if I do decide to admit I was wrong, it'll be about something that doesn't matter. Something that I don't think is important. But if it's important to me, I'm right. You don't have the right to keep your own opinions, to keep your own mind. If I say something is true, then it's true. If I say something is false, it's false. I may call you terrible names. I may make you feel bad about yourself. I may blame you for the things that I'm doing to you. See, in our, in, in our arguments, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to interrupt you all the time. I'm going to correct you because nothing you're saying is right. And if you try to get a word in, then I'll blame you for interrupting me. Arguments, to me, are not conversations where we're seeking the truth. Arguments are war, and I will dominate. You will submit. Those are some of the sinful ways that hurtful, even abusive relationships, people can try and control in relationships. A person who hurts you with their sins may also try to control your freedom. may try and control your freedom what you wear what you eat where you go where you go who your friends are you only have freedom in the areas that i give you permission to be free in or in areas that i don't care about if you don't do what i say then i'll point out how stupid your choices are until you give in right you're wearing that Boy, you look terrible. You better go change. And if I give you any freedom at all, you better be sure to be thankful to me to give it, for giving you that freedom. You don't have personal innate freedom. I bestow it upon you. A harmful person may also try and control how everyone else sees the relationship and sees them. Right? In public, everyone will usually think that I am just wonderful. In public, I'll be calm. I'll be gentle and patient. I'll have a smiling face for the world to see. People will love me. I'll be willing to talk with others. I'll be reasonable. I'll be even willing to disagree with others. But not you. Everyone else will think that I am the nicest person around. No one will ever believe that I treat you the way that I treat you. I'll charm other people and tell jokes and they'll see how reasonable I am, how level-headed I am, what a good person I am. And if you ever try to tell others what I'm actually like, they'll think you're crazy because I seem like such a nice and reasonable, God-fearing person, right? I'm like the brothers who were comforting their father. No one will believe you. Sinful people who hurt, hurt others in relationships believe they have more rights than you do, right? I own you. You're mine. I'm stronger than you. I'm smarter than you. If you would just be quiet and listen to me, if you would just do what I say, then everything would be better. Our life would be easier. My life would be easier. 
And when I say I prefer something, you must accept it, right? Well, that movie's terrible. You must come to the same conclusion. If I say a food tastes awful, that's it. There is no other opinion. The food is bad. And I'll probably still tell you I love you, right? But I don't mean when I say I love you that I should treat you the way that Christ treats us. I don't mean that I'm going to keep God's law towards you. I don't mean that I'm going to love you as Christ does in the gospel. What I mean is I love what I can get from you. I love how you can make me feel. I love how you love me. I'd love for you to devote your life to keeping me happy and comfortable. And I'll justify my actions by saying, well, you you hurt the ones that you love the most. Right? The only reason I'm so hard on you is because I love you. Because I have such strong feelings for you. My anger just shows you how, how much I really care about you. When I say I love you, what I mean is I feel like I have a right to your love for me. I don't mean I lay down my life to serve you even when I don't get my way. I mean I love for you to be my servant. It's really the anti-gospel, right? You will be forced to bow down and serve me rather than what Christ did, which was willingly lay down his life to serve others. It's the anti-gospel. Back to the abuser. If you ever confront them about their behaviors, they will blame someone else. It is never their fault. It's always your fault that I treat you the way that I do. You're the one that's pushing my buttons. If you would just do what I say, then I wouldn't have to do what I do to you. You don't have the right to confront me, right? Are you without sin? No. Don't you dare cast the first stone. How dare you confront me in my sin? If you confront me with being angry, I'll confront you about being angry. If you try to say that I'm controlling you, I'm going to confront you about your controlling behavior. This is one of the biggest red flags in any relationship. Young ones especially. Listen, if there is someone that you have a relationship with that will never accept blame, run away. Be very careful. If you try to confront someone's sin biblically and lovingly and they just blame you, that's a huge problem. They will refuse to accept correction or criticism because somehow, some way, it's really your fault. That's how they view the world. And they may say things, right, to lessen things. You're, you're just being too sensitive. Why are you being so persnickety, right? No one's perfect. No one's all nice all the time. You're just being unrealistic. You're being selfish, right? They're redirecting. They're minimizing their sin and redirecting it to someone else. And when you 
try to confront me about things in the past, I'll just rewrite the history a little bit anyway, right? We're not, I'm, I'm not remembering things exactly the way that you are. But really, I'm just trying to confuse you. See, my story always paints me in a better light than what you remember. And my story, my memory, always makes you look worse. And I'll even blame you for not remembering things right, even though you may be. And if, because I'm such a gracious person, I ever do agree to apologize, I will insist you must accept my apology. Because if I ask for forgiveness, you need to understand that I deserve to be forgiven. And I'll do all this while retaining my right to refuse your apologies. I'll even blame you for not being forgiving enough, right? You're not being loving. You're not being Christ-like. Why won't you take my apology? Why won't you forgive me? You don't have a right not to forgive. Christ says that we have to forgive. Therefore, you must. See how that's domination? You will submit. So that's some of the mindset of people who can sinfully harm in a relationship. But let's think just for a minute about how this harmful mindset can affect you in a relationship. Right? You might begin to think you're the one who's crazy. Maybe, maybe all this conflict really is my fault. You know, I, I really could have responded better back then. I probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah, I, maybe, maybe it is me. Maybe you begin to think that if I can just change enough, if I'm just good enough, then that person won't be bad anymore. But they won't change. You may begin to think that I'm really not that bad because there are times when I'm so sweet and charming, right? There'll be times where I pour on the kindness, just reel you back in. I may lavish gifts. I may give you undivided attention. I may take you on wonderful vacations, but it's all part of my act to bring you back in. To get you close again. You may begin to think that you're the one that's setting off my temper, right? You're the one that's pushing all my buttons. Therefore, my anger, my lashing out is really your fault. It's really all part of my plan to get you to act the way I want you to. I'm quite in control. And you'll be tempted to excuse my behavior. You'll be tempted to overlook all the terrible things I do to you because you want to avoid conflict. Right? It's not worth the effort. I'll just give in. It's not worth a fight. You'll be tempted to agree with me even when you don't. You'll be tempted to accept my version of reality rather than what is really true. It's not worth it. I'll just cave again. 
and again and again. Do you find any of these patterns in yourself? Not all of them. I, almost no one can do all of these things. But do you do any of these things, some of these things, in the way you treat your spouse or your children, your brothers, your sisters, your friends? And if you do, then let me call upon you to admit your sins before God. Confess them to him. The Lord Jesus Christ has changed the hearts of terribly sinful and abusive people. There is hope. The Apostle Paul held the coats of people who were stoning Stephen. He watched someone be murdered in front of him. But Christ changed Paul's heart and brought him to repentance. And the Lord Jesus can change your heart too. But you must first come to him for mercy. And if this is you, I encourage you to tell someone that you trust. Tell your pastors. Tell a mature Christian. Tell your Sunday school teacher. Get someone to pray for you and to hold you accountable. Get someone who can help bear your burdens. Or maybe you find yourself being hurt by someone in this way. Maybe someone in your own family. Maybe someone who says they're your friend. If so, then remember that Jesus Christ knows what it is to suffer like this. They nailed him to a tree and they made fun of him while he hung there. They attacked him. They falsely accused him. Jesus sympathizes with you. And he knows how to pray for you from heaven. He knows how to pray for you. And so if you find yourself suffering in a harmful relationship, Jesus has many things to teach you. His word teaches you how to love people who claim to be your friends but really are your enemies. And if this is you, you should reach out to a wise, trusted, trustworthy Christian. Maybe a parent, maybe a pastor, maybe a Sunday school teacher. And if you're a person who's noticing these unhealthy dynamics in another person's home, in another person's marriage, somewhere around you, and you want to know how you can help, then I, I address that in the next session at the marriage conference. I encourage you to find that audio on our website where I lay out some practical steps where we can bear one another's burdens in the church. So I'm about to close in prayer and lead us to the Lord's table. But before I do, let us consider the Christ who sets the table for us. He doesn't bark at us and demand us to come. He isn't cold and distant, withholding his affection while also demanding that we give him our affection. See, he warms our hearts and he stirs our affections by offering us genuine, selfless love and service. See, he wasn't concerned about his comfort, but he gave it all up in order that we might be comforted. He isn't interested in prestige and status, but he became nothing so that in him we might receive everything. He didn't come down to be served, but to serve others.
He doesn't dominate us. He doesn't obliterate our individuality, but he woos us with his grace and unites us to himself by giving us his very spirit. That is the Christ that bids us come to him and let us think warmly of him as he calls us to his table and let that love drive us to worship and love him. As is our custom here at Morning View, we try to read our church covenant once a month, which is on the inside of one of the hymnals in the pew racks in front of you. Inside the